this is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst Jeffrey Keel. Dr. Keel holds a master's degree in physics from Indiana University and a doctorate in atmospheric science from the State University of New York in Albany. In 2003, he went on to earn a master's in psychology before embarking on his analytical training with the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. He is currently a senior scientist in the Climate Change Research Section of the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. He is also an adjunct professor in both the Earth and Planetary Sciences and Environmental Studies departments at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He is the author of A Jungian Perspective on Global Warming, published in the journal Ecopsychology in 2012, and The Evolution of Archetypal Forms in Western Civilization, published this year in Psychological Perspectives. His new book, Facing Climate Change, An Integrated Path to the Future, was published in March by Columbia University Press. He is also the co-editor and contributor to the book, Frontiers of Climate Modeling, published by Cambridge University Press in 2006. Dr. Keel has carried out research on climatic periods of Earth's deep past, with particular emphasis on extinction events. He is a fellow of both the American Meteorological Society and the American Geophysical Union. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Achievement Award in Climate System Modeling and the 2012 recipient of the American Geophysical Union Climate Communication Prize. He is also the former chair of the Community Climate System Model Project and former member of the National Research Council's Climate Research Committee. He now focuses his time on two general areas of Jungian research, the interaction of psyche and matter and connections to physics, and the role of archetypes in cultural transitions through Western history. This interview was recorded on July 20th, 2016, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Keel, you've been a climate scientist for over 30 years, and you're also a Jungian analyst. You actually have three master's degrees and a PhD, yet you decided to become a Jungian analyst, which is not an easy thing to do. It actually takes a really long time. Indeed, it does. It's a, it is a, it's a, a long and arduous path uh, to become an analyst, but ex- exciting and rewarding uh, as well. What made you decide to pursue that path? Oh, I would say there, uh, I mean, the major reason uh, was I was in analysis. This is many years ago, mm-hmm. probably 25 years ago or so. I was in analysis because uh, things weren't going right in, in life. I mean, one usually ends up in analysis when things are going uh, awry in your life, Uh if things are going really great, uh, you usually don't seek out analysis. But I, I was the reason I ended up in Jungian analysis is that uh, I had been reading a lot of Joseph Campbell's works. I was very interested in myths and or, especially origin myths. And in reading uh, Campbell's works, I just kept coming up with the name Jung, Jung here, Jung there, and 
So when I was really uh, looking for uh, uh, a therapeutic process, uh, I decided to start reading Jung. And so I was devouring Jung's works. And I do remember the moment when I realized, well, you know, I could keep reading this, his works uh, indefinitely. Uh, but there's a, I really want to experience uh, what this is about. Uh, and that was when I decided to go into analysis, that I wanted to the experience. I wanted to choose I, that path for the experience of the therapeutic process. Uh, and so I did analysis. Uh, that stint was like three years, and things, life got better, and I thought, well, you know, uh, time to go back and do my science. I had been doing my you know, climate science at that time period. And then just a couple years after that, I just felt the real need uh, to go back in into analysis. And I didn't know really at the time what that need or desire was, what the root of it was. Uh, but I listened to <clears throat> what Psyche was saying and uh, went back into analysis. And it was in that analysis where after a while the dreams that were arising from uh, my unconscious were telling me uh, quite uh, strongly that I was to be a Jungian analyst. And I, of course, my ego resisted uh, that message for a while because I was a very well-established climate scientist. I really didn't need another career. Uh, but the dreams were quite relentless. And uh, then I had a, uh, what in the Jungian world is called a big dream. Uh, yeah. And this was a big dream that I was in. I actually was sitting in Kusnacht with Jung, and we were talking uh, about uh, Jungian analysis. And then I left Jung's office, and I, I went down and sat outside uh near a, a lake, and I was sitting on a bench, and I looked over, and a, a senior analyst who uh, is who lives in Denver, Colorado, was sitting at the other end of the bench, and I looked at him, and I said, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. Do this meaning, you know, become an analyst, mm -hmm. uh, because I have uh, this other career, I have a family, you know, I have responsibilities. And uh, he, his name is Glenn. Glenn looked at me and said, well, Jeff, there's always a way. And that was the end of the dream. And it was after that dream that I realized that uh, I really was going to become a Jungian analyst. So you know, when people say or ask me, how did you decide or what to become a Jungian analyst, my answer to that is always, I didn't decide. Uh, I, the ego, did not make that decision. This was a calling uh, from the self, uh, you know, the archetype of wholeness. This was a calling to become something that I was supposed to, to become. And so uh, the dream was correct. There was a way. I went back and got a master's degree in psychology with a, a, a Jungian focus. And then I applied to the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts training program and got in. 
uh, and that was, you know, the sort of the entrance to the path. Uh, and I was constantly listening uh, to my dreams as a, a guide uh, through the training process. Uh, that, that became a, a very important part uh, of my training. You know, I, when I entered training, scientists are very curious people, so they love to ask questions. And so my question to almost every analyst I met at the very beginning of training was, what is the most important, important part or aspect of uh, training to become an analyst? And whoever, and, and, and whoever I asked, uh, either locally or you know, meeting analysts far away, their immediate response was your personal analysis. Uh, and I, you know, having gone through the training uh, and completing it, I realized that that is the correct, uh, that is the true answer to that question, that the most important part of training is your personal analysis uh, and to listen to the what your unconscious is telling you through dreams and synchronicities and the projections that you experience in your life are all guides. They're all informants to the training process. So Jungian, you know, becoming a Jungian analyst, it's, it's truly is a calling. It's, it's not a career. I think people who become, I mean, this is a, a really strong statement, but people who become enamored of or uh, fascinated with uh, Jung's ideas, uh, but don't have that calling and force themselves into the uh, training process, uh, they they pay for that because it's you know they're going against uh, psyche. Uh, it's it's a it's a more of an ego uh, fascination uh, or a persona. You know, I I want to become an analyst. Uh, and it becomes a whole persona thing. And if you enter training with that attitude, uh, uh, the suffering is great. It is, is a, you know, I, I, I think the, those who pass through the process uh, and grow are the ones who, you know, have stories like mine, which are, it was a calling. There was no choice. You know, if you chose not to train to become an analyst, you were putting yourself in peril. That, that's interesting that you mentioned that because while you were explaining it, um, the difference between the, the wants of the ego and the call of the self, would mm -hmm. you say? Yes. Well, what if your ego really doesn't want it and your self is calling you and your dreams are, are trying to get your attention well, Jung, Jung actually had the, uh, you know, he talks about this in a number of places, perhaps the most strongly worded place that he discusses this is in the Zarathustra seminar uh, talks. Uh, there's, there's a section in there where someone asks him that very question, and his response is uh, the, the, psych the psyche or self will begin to recognize that it's being ignored and uh, that will lead to, can lead to tremendous psychological and physical. The body can uh, be involved in this as well and physical 
suffering, uh, and that the self will eventually realize that the ego is not interested in the individuation process, and it could actually just uh, completely uh, leave uh, the, the, the process. And so uh, that's a pretty, when you read his words, uh, he does not, you know, mince words around the issue that our, our path is to, you know, listen to what self has to say and to heed that call, even if, and often it is uh, a, a challenge. You know, another place he says, there is no transformation without sacrifice. I think he says that in the, the, the essay on the mass. Uh, there is no transformation without sacrifice. And so what's being sacrificed? It's the ego's ideas of what uh, we should be. Very difficult message to, to hear and listen to. Uh, and often we choose not to. Uh, and as, again, if we do, uh, terrible things can happen to us. But then you were also describing people that kind of had the opposite thing where it was an ego desire of theirs. Yes, yeah, right. And now that there the situation could be that uh, they truly are uh, called. Uh, the ego is, is the first to sort of uh, become aware of that. And in the, then they're listening to their dreams and doing the, their analysis they will find a, a concert between what the self actually wants and what their ego uh, uh, wants them to do. Uh, so, you know, I'm, one needs an ego. It's the thing that uh, maneuvers us through life and uh, enables us to, you know, to become an analyst. Uh, so in that situation, they, the, what the self is saying and what the ego is, is is desiring actually match with one another I see. How, however it could be that uh, the desire of the ego is to become you know an analyst is not in concert uh, or harmony with what the self wants and that you know if the person's really tending to their dreams and listening to the unconscious that message will eventually be clear uh, the, you know, the self wants them to do something else in life. After you became an analyst, did you start seeing patients? I started seeing clients uh, when I was doing my training for the master's degree in psychology, because that was a clinical degree. And I had an established practice, you know, before I got, just as I was getting into uh, the analytic training. Uh, so, you know, and then through the entire analytic training process, one sees clients because one part of the process is to uh, essentially uh, write up cases, case reports on people that you're, you're working with. Right. I was just wondering if you had stopped your research. No, no I, I uh, actually, I've done both. Uh, okay pathways in my life at the same time, which oh, has wow. been uh, a real challenge. I would yeah. not recommend it <laughs> as, a right. way, as a way uh, uh, to live one's life. But uh, there was actually, I think, in the end, a, 
I, I see the purpose in all of that. And it has to do with in the process of getting the, the uh, analytic training, I became, I was holding the real strong tension between my life as a scientist and my, my life as a training uh, analyst. And um, there was a moment in there, I had to decide what I was going to write my thesis on. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized somewhere in the midst of that training process that I didn't need to look at these as polar opposites, uh, that I could actually bring them together around uh, uh, the, the marriage of Jungian psychology and n- environmental science. And uh, so I decided to write my thesis. It was called Nature Visible and Invisible and uh, had a really great committee of analysts who, were, who cared deeply uh, about nature. And so I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, working on the thesis. And it, it was the process of actually uh, a conjunctio or union between uh, my scientific side and my, my analyst uh, side. And it was also around that time that I was organizing some workshops where I was bringing people together uh, to talk about the, the climate problem from different perspectives. And so by the time I finished the training, uh, I realized that this was going to be my path. You know, there's the clinical work, but then there's also how does one take Jungian psychology out into the world? I think this is a very important topic. It's an imperative right now in the yes. world we live in. Uh, we have for so long tried to deal with uh, the problems in the world through a, you know, one, a one-sided uh, perspective, which is mainly an extroverted thinking uh, uh, approach uh, to, to solving the world's problems. And I think what Jungian psychology brings uh, to the world is a, is a completely different uh, way of approaching uh, the problems that we face in the world. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do personally with the, the writings that I'm doing and the workshops and the, the talks that I give is really trying to create what I call like, you know, engaged Jungian psychology. Mm-hmm. There's a in Buddhism. There's called, there's this phrase engaged Buddhism, which is taking Buddhism out into the world and and using it to look at uh, and, and hopefully uh, alleviate suffering in the world, you know, the external world. And I think we can do the same thing with Jungian psychology. It, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't be completely focused on the the interior world of a, an individual's psyche. Yes. Of course, I'm not, I'm not unique or new in proclaiming this. Perhaps the most eloquent person to, to proclaim this many years ago was James Hillman, who mm-hmm. you know, said, th- you know, throw open the windows of the consulting room and, and invite the world uh, into the process. Uh, and, and then even later, you know, take it out into the world. Uh, I, I think that's so important because I see this, you know, there is a tension, I think, within the analytic uh, community. Yeah. 
where some people feel, no, our sole purpose is soul, S-O-L-E, as well as S-O-U-L. Right. Our sole purpose is to sit in you know, the consulting room with our clients and to work on their individuation process. I don't deny that that is, is the, uh, an extremely important dimension of the analytic uh, process. However, my response to people who tell me that is, look, the people who come in to see you are not leaving the world, okay? They're bringing that world in the room with them. Yeah. And they're only in the room with you 50 minutes. And when they leave, they're back in that world. And if that world is falling apart, if it's reached a, a degree of fragmentation unseen in, in history, then there is no hermetically sealing that container so that the world's left out on the doorstep. Okay. Equally, the analyst is bringing the world into the room with them. The analyst who reads about climate change, who reads about you know, the political disruptions that are occurring, the economic disruptions that are occurring, they also are bringing that world into the room. So it's there, whether you, whether you like it or not, whether you want it to be present or not, the world is in the room, and, it's, and it comes into people's dreams. You know, one of the chapters in my thesis, I, I collected dreams about climate change that people are having, the, you know, the extinction of species that are occurring. So there's no question that, you know, what's happening in the world in terms of environmental uh, de uh, destruction has entered the psyches uh, uh, of people, and uh, it's having uh, an effect on them. So we need to address that as well as uh, the personal uh, dimensions, uh, the personal traumas that people have. There is a global trauma that's occurring in, in terms of environmental uh, destruction that that is uh, wreaking havoc uh, with the, the world psyche as well as individual psyches. And that needs to be a part of the analytic process. I mean, I feel very strongly that uh, about that. It's actually an ethical uh, issue. It's, we are ethically responsible uh, to tend to the world that we inhabit. Yes. And, and that has to be a part of the analytic process. So yes, yes, we have to sit and work with uh, in, individuals who are suffering uh, due to past uh, trauma or present uh, uh, disruption in their local lives. But we also have to ask the question, how do you feel about what's going on in the world today? And how is that uh, playing a role in you know, uh, what you're experiencing right now in life? Mm -hmm. Well, you've written a book, uh, which was published earlier this year, called Facing Climate Change, an Integrated Path to the Future. And the word integrated sort of gave it away to me that it was written from a Jungian perspective because that's what Jung encouraged, didn't he? Right. That's Integration. Correct. Right. I mean, the individuation path is a path to wholeness. It's not a path to perfection, but it's a path to wholeness. And wholeness here is uh, first... Uh, what I was just talking about, it, wholeness is uh, the union of inner and outer, uh, the, of psyche, uh, the interior world of psyche 
uh, the union of that with uh, the external world uh, and bringing balance uh, uh, within those two worlds and between those two worlds. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the union of conscious and unconscious uh, to the extent that we can make things in the unconscious conscious brings us closer to wholeness. And then, of course, it relates to the, the issue of opposites. As you know, Jung, from the very beginning of his uh, investigations, was fascinated with the presence of opposites in, in psyche and in the external world. Yes. I mean, if you look at his publications, you know, 1921, he publishes Psychological Types. What's it about? It's about opposites. In the last book that he writes, you know, Mysterium, what's it about? It's about the union of opposites and everything in between as he keeps coming back to this issue of, you know, looking at opposites, holding opposites. Uh, and that's that process of holding the opposites is the, the pathway to wholeness. So the book, you know, the book really goes through, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote this for the general public, so I did not, I purposely have not used a lot of uh, Jungian lingo <laughs> or terminology. Uh, so I attempted to explain Jungian psychology applied to the issue of climate change without using a lot of Jungian terminology. But I do talk about, you know, complexes and how complexes affect our relationship to the world and the archetypal roots of those complexes as patterns, patterns of perception and image. Uh, and then I talk about uh, opposites. And then the last part of the book looks at uh, the transpersonal dimension. Uh, that is the, the archetype of wholeness or the self and how important it is because it provides us with a sense of meaning. And I think this is, we're, we're in a, a time of, of a complete loss of meaning uh, in terms of why we're in the world, what our purpose is in the world. Uh, we have become so disconnected from that sense of meaning that uh, it has led to and propagates this uh, fragmentation and destruction that's occurring in the world. Well, hopefully we can get to the why of that in a little bit, but I just wanted to start here with asking you, what is climate change exactly, and is it the same thing as global warming? Well, climate change uh, is the observed changes that we're seeing in things like the, the temperature of the planet, mm -hmm. uh, the um, the storminess that occurs in, uh, uh, on the planet, uh, the temperature of the oceans. There are many aspects of climate change. Usually when people think of climate change, they think of one thing, which is how warm the planet is and how warm it's getting. Mm -hmm. And so the term global warming was coined back in the 80s uh, to represent this phenomena. There, there is a subtle difference between climate change and global warming. Okay. Uh, global warming uh, has one cause, which is uh, humans burning fossil fuel, which puts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, which leads to the warming of the planet. Climate change, when it was first introduced, it means change not just due to humans, 
the natural changes that occur in the climate system, and those do occur. There's a, a phenomena that everyone's probably read about in the newspaper or even has experienced its effects, uh, and that's El Nino. El Nino is this periodic warming of the tropical Pacific, which changes the Earth's climate, and it lasts for a year or so, and then it goes away, and about four or five years later, it comes back. It's this natural uh, variation or change in the climate system that has existed for a long time. It's not due to human activity. It's just a natural consequence of the complex nature of the Earth's system. However, on top of that natural change, uh, we have been, through our actions, altering uh, the climate system. And so nowadays when people say climate change, uh, they're pretty much talking about the human role in uh, its effect, uh, the human effect on uh, the climate system, which is identical to global warming. Okay, so there is no doubt about that then, because there are some people... There, that... Yeah, right. There is no doubt that humans are the major cause for the warming okay. that we've been seeing for the last uh, three or four decades. And, and just to, to clarify, uh, I live here in Chicago, and not so much last winter, but the two previous winters were brutal. I've yes. never yeah. seen that much snow in my life. And right. I've never experienced that many days of the temperature being below zero. Right. It was scary. I would wake up in the morning, it would be 18 degrees below zero. And mm -hmm. so I, I actually, at that time, I heard somebody say to me, he said, uh, oh, yeah, well, so much for global warming. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, because it's a difference between weather and warm and climate. Uh, the weather is what happens to the atmosphere on from you know anywhere from a, a week days to weeks to months to even a year uh, it can vary uh, significantly from year to year uh, but on but climate is taking all the weather over say 10 years time period and averaging it to see on a long time scale uh, how the system is changing and so, yes, you get year to year, especially for a specific region. You know, Chicago was really cold, but there were other parts of the planet that were really warm yeah. those two years. Yeah. Okay. So if I were sitting in one of those places where it was anomalously hot, I would be saying, yeah, that's climate change. It's real. It's, it's real stuff that's happening, you know. Uh, so uh, when you average over the whole globe, uh, you actually find that the last, even despite it being that cold in Chicago those two years, those two years were uh, globally uh, anomalously warm years compared to a past decade, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you can't point to a specific day's weather or even a season, like you know this winter versus last winter, and say, oh, well, that proves or disproves the human-caused climate change. You have to look at the long-term record, and we have a long-term record. And, uh, you know, it'd be like saying, uh, say I caught you on a bad day. You know, you had somebody hit your car, and you came into work, and you were really grumpy and upset, and, and I met you for the first time. 
And, and I walked away and my conclusion would be, well, that's a really grumpy person. <laughs> you know, based on that one experience or that, that transient uh, event that we had, I would make a general conclusion that about uh, your personality. Well, it's the same thing with climate. Climate has, uh, the, the weather system has its ups and downs, but integrated over, you know, after many, many times of looking at the system, and averaging over that, we get a sense of, oh, well, this is the climate system, and it, it is warming. It'd be like me meeting you many times, okay? I and eventually, that. over a year after, you know, having coffee and talking, I would get a better sense of who you are as a person, you know, your personality, but not not on one, one or two uh, meetings. That would be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I just want to say in fairness here, I moved to Chicago 12 years ago, and I remember thinking at the time, because I, I didn't know what to expect as far as the weather, and I just want to say to everybody, we are going to look at this from a Jungian perspective in just a minute, okay? So I just want to say that I remember thinking, yeah, it does get very cold here in the winter, but the summers are hot too, and I remember thinking, you know, every day during the summer, it seems to be somewhere around 80 degrees. It's either in the high 70s, it's 80 or it's in the low 80s. Now, in 2016, I'm saying every day in the summer, it's around 90. Yes. It's yeah. either in the high 80s or in the low 90s. Uh -huh. And in just 10 years or so, it's jumped on average 10 degrees. Well, over the last 30 years, there are twi twice the number of heat waves as there are cold cold spells in the, over the U.S. And, you know, if, if humans weren't playing a role in the climate system, you would expect, um, on average, as many cold spells as warm spells. Right. And yet now it's two to one, and in another 20 or 30 years, it could be 20 to one. Uh, so we're talking about dramatic change in how people experience uh, their world. Okay, so let's get into what's going on here. Uh -huh. And in your paper, A Jungian Perspective on Global Warming, you there's a lot packed into these, what is it, six pages? Uh -huh. This is a wonderful paper, and I'll put a link to it on the website. Um, this was published in September of 2012 in the journal uh, Eco-Psychology. You talk about our need for consumption yeah and this incessant need for energy that we have is uh -huh. causing a massive consumption of fossil fuels on our part and you talk about this myth that we're living in this the living myth that we have of um, unending growth uh -huh. so how is that all contributing to climate change well, uh, you know, let's just look at the uh, physical picture first. Uh, we we have this desire uh, to live a certain way, a certain lifestyle, and that requires uh, energy. We we need to generate energy to produce things, the things that we want to buy and consume, be it uh, objects or food or whatever, cars, uh, anything needs energy uh, for it to be created. And so uh, because the population of the planet is increasing, 
And not only that, because the number of people, each of those individuals wants to consume more, uh, the demand for energy continues to increase uh, over time. And since the Industrial Revolution, the, the cheapest way to generate energy uh, was extracting fossil fuels from the ground and burning them. Uh, and that leads to this issue of you know, climate change. So at the root of the planet's warming is our desire and demand for ever um, increasing amounts of energy. And what do, you know, what's driving that, uh, now we're going to shift out of the physical side of the picture to the, you know, to the psychological uh, dimension. You know, why do we have this desire to consume more and more you know, of the Earth's resources? Uh, and that, I, what I argue it comes from, is a sense of emptiness uh, that we experience within ourselves. Uh, that we, in the process of developing this highly technological, rational world that we live in, seemingly rational world that we live in, mm -hmm. uh, we have disconnected ourselves from uh, our inner sense of wholeness, okay, which is the archetype of the self. Okay. Now, for, for centuries, certain belief systems, uh, external belief systems, created a framework that we that we could tap into that would provide us with a, an overall sense of well-being or a sense of wholeness okay I mean during the Middle Ages that was the church okay uh, it provided a framework a system of images and narratives and myths that uh, pr created for people a sense of connection to something greater than themselves yeah okay? And then, you know, we have the scientific revolution, the age of enlightenment, that, that belief system starts to lose its intensity, okay? And, and we replace it with a belief that, you know, our scientific knowledge, our technology can, can fulfill our lives, okay? It can provide us with a sense of meaning and a sense of uh, fulfillment. And that just hasn't worked because it's too one-sided. You know, this is the root of, you know, Jung's view of any neurosis. Uh, it's, it arises out of one-sidedness. And our culture went completely one-sided uh, in the age of, uh, since the age of enlightenment. And it isn't fulfilling. We're, we've disconnected ourselves from that inner source of fullness within. And we're trying uh, we're attempting to address that inner emptiness by consuming the outside world, and it's not working. Okay, right. and, and 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 of course it's a self-perpetuating belief. That is, well, if I only had more, if I could only buy s some more, if I could only get more of this or that, that would make me feel uh, fulfilled. And of course, even if you are able to do that, it just doesn't work because Fundamentally, we've lost this. We have this disconnection within ourselves. And so, you know, what Jung was telling us uh, is that, you know, our, our process is for us to go in and reconnect 
to that sense of wholeness within, the archetype of the self. And, and then what it will do, it provides us with a meaningful path, a, pro, a meaningful way to live our lives, which is self-fulfilled. It won't require us to over-consume. We're always going to consume. We have to consume right. to survive as, as, as uh, human beings or you know, any living organism must consume. Okay? It's the degree to which we consume. You know, ex- an example of this is the average American consumes twice the amount of natural resource energy that the average European consumes. Now, you know, I often say when I tell people, I've been to Europe enough that I know, and I have many European friends, I don't think I could argue that the average American is twice as happy as the average European. Right. So the question arises, okay, what are we getting (laughs) for that two times (laughs) consumption? What, What is this? You know, what is this all about? And I think uh, from my perspective, using this Jungian framework, it, it has to it goes back to our disconnection from the transpersonal, our investment in a belief system, perpetual growth. You know, it's it's so funny. You know, what would happen to a politician who announced one day, you know what, I think we have enough and I think we should just keep steady economic, you know, our economic economy is steady. It shouldn't grow anymore. Well, you know, I doubt that politician would be reelected. <laughs> and yet we have reached a point where we cannot continue to consume. We're already consuming 60% more natural resources from the planet that they can provide to sustain the world. In other words, we are, we've gone over budget. <laughs> we are borrowing from the future to create the world that we're living in and it's unsustainable we live on a finite planet with a belief system that we can live an infinite lifestyle and it just can't work is this about personal fulfillment or is this about money because the more americans consume the more money it's going to generate right they're they're interrelated you can't decouple uh, the money complex from the complex of uh, of consumption. Okay. Uh, they feed on one another, and there are organiz- We have cleverly developed organizations that self-perpetuate this. You know, advertising agencies know this. You know, they don't advertise a car by telling you the technical specifications of the car. They show you images of you know people sitting in cars driving along country roads with beautiful music playing in the background and hair blowing in the wind. And, you know, that's, they're very cleverly using image. You know, they're tapping into the, the uh, part of the brain that's the the limbic system that is very affectively uh, connected to image and uh, using it very uh, cleverly to convince us that if I buy that car, I'm going to feel better about myself. There's a whole yeah, there's a whole uh, area of social psychology that has looked at this issue of self-identity and consumerism, and there's plenty of plenty of research that supports this idea that we have moved into an age where our identity we're trying we're attempting to uh, define our self-identity in terms of our material belongings, yeah. and it's and it actually the consequences of it are terrible for our relationships, terrible for our health, 
terrible for the world. Advertisers, advertising agencies, and advertisements in general just get to me. I mean, how manipulative, how it's just horrifying what they do. Yes. I'm projecting, yeah, that, yes. A yes, lot that's of stuff. right. That's what I was going to say is, you know, this, and I even say this about, you know, many people say, you know, the evil of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, they, it's now clear. There are numerous, numerous stories that have come out just in the last year or two that of how much they have been sowing uh, disinformation to the public around the issue of climate change. Uh huh. Uh, and funding that disinformation wow. process. Uh, and so it's easy to say, oh, they're the evil ones. You know, right. they're, they're the ones that are causing this problem. But, you know, all of us go to a gas station. You know, I have a hybrid, but I still need to put gas in it. Even if I had an electric vehicle, uh, chances are the electricity that's going into that car to charge it's coming from a coal-fired power plant. Okay. So, you know... We are all, this is something that I talk about, I think, in the paper and certainly yes. book is we have to, you know, em embrace the shadow within ourselves around yes. this, the shadow that we don't want to either think about it, or if we do think about it, we want to blame somebody else uh, for the problem. Right. And, we, and, and you talk about even um, the criticism that you received for flying to a conference to give yes. a talk about right. climate change. Right. So what what's your answer to that, to that criticism? I actually, my answer to it is that you're, you're, you're absolutely right in my agreeing to come and speak to you know, the, a, a, a large body of people about climate change. And if I flew there, uh, I have contributed to the problem. Uh, and so I have to recognize that shadow part of that process of going somewhere and giving a talk. Uh, and, you know, I can encourage people that organize meetings to use the Internet more to organize meetings. You can only do so much with right, that. Right. You can also, you know, there are things that one can do to offset the carbon emitted on that air fare, air flight uh, to help offset the carbon emitted. Uh, all of these are ways of recognizing that uh, we're all complicit in this um, Problem now, you know the the problem with this is that if you do too much of this, or you go down uh, that road s too far, then what happens psychologically is it 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 creates a sense of helplessness or hopelessness, and you're unable to act. Okay, and so one thing that I always encourage people to do is yes, definitely reflect on the various shadow dimensions, personal and collective, around an issue like climate change. But you have to reach, you also have to recognize that out of that reflection can come action. You know, it's really, if you want to think of this alchemically, you know, when Jung was very much influenced by his psychological interpretation of alchemy, mm -hmm. going down into that shadow part is the negredo. It's the dark space, right? It's the place that we all start at in terms of our individual uh, suffering as well as our collective uh, uh, suffering. However, the next stage of that process is reflection. It's it's the albedo. It's bringing uh, what 
Murray Stein calls lunar consciousness to the process. Okay, so you reflect on the state that you're in. All right, that's a that's a going within. That's the analytic process. Okay, and and if you get stuck in the first phase and never get out of it, well, you're never going to get to the point of actually going out into the world and attempting to address the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. The last phase stage is, of course, what uh, is the rebato, the reddening, and Jung, you know eloquently says that's bringing blood into it that's embodying it okay and and once you've embodied the transformation then you can you're in the world and you're you're engaged and you're actually doing something uh, to alleviate the suffering so the steps are you know you go into the darkness and you explore that darkness and then we are certainly in in the darkness now uh, but then you go on and bring uh, a reflective consciousness, and that's listening to the unconscious, that's looking at synchronicities, looking at the things that are occurring uh, between psyche and matter. Uh, and then there's actually a third stage, which is solar consciousness, uh, that's, that you're now beginning to understand, cognitively understand, creatively understand the mess that you're in, and, you know, why you're in that mess. And Jung had a very interesting thing he said about that stage. It's often at that stage that people get so elated that they'll say, I'm done, okay? I understand. I understand why I did that in my life, or I understand how I ended up in this situation. And they leave the analytic process. And he he warned people that uh, that's that's a false termination of the, of the individuation process because the most important step is the final one, which is embodying that understanding, actually embodying it and bringing it out into the world, and that's the rebato. So, you know, we're in this process right now. The, you know, most of the world, we're in the, we're in the negredo, we're in the darkness. Now, isn't it interesting that coal and, and crude oil are dark, substances you know yeah. and there's tremendous symbolism around that that we have to go down deep into the earth to extract these substances and in, in burning them we create this energy this external energy you know think about that the whole problem is being generated by ex- the desire for external energy when in fact what's missing is a connection to the inner psychic energy that, that dwells within each of us. And, and my argument is that if we were to reconnect and find that source of inner psychic energy, our desire to overconsume and, and our desire for external energy would actually be diminished. You also bring up Jung's concept of complexes mm-hmm. as they relate to global warming. And would you explain a little bit about that? A complex is, uh, they used to be in the 60s and early 70s, they were called our buttons. Uh, the way I usually right. like to explain a complex is, you know, have you ever, you know, become so excited that you've said something or done something that after the, the fact, you look back on it and you ask yourself, why did I say that? You know, why did I do that? What, what got into me? Well, you know, the answer to that from a Jungian 
uh, perspective is what got into you is you were seized by a complex. A complex is this coherent uh, structure in psyche that is highly uh, affectively laden. So whenever you find yourself uh, emotionally overcharged, especially if it's a response that uh, is amplified compared to what it should be, you know, something small happens and your reaction is over the top, right. and you know that a, tr a complex has been triggered. So the question here is related to the uh, issue of climate change is, where is the emotional, highly laden, emotional or affectively charged uh, aspects of this problem? Mm -hmm. And it truly is. I mean, I have been, I've given talks to groups where people will start yelling you know, they'll be extremely upset that I've even brought this topic up and that I'm saying that humans are the, the cause of it. They become extremely emotionally um, overwrought and, and uh, red in the face even. So uh, it clearly is something that constellates or triggers complexes within us. And what are those complexes? Well, some of them, I think, are related uh, around the issues that we just talked about you know, the, the, the money complex is one that we, you know, we all want to feel financially secure. And if anything threatens our sense of financial security, it can trigger our money complex and we become very fearful. You know, the affect or is, is charges around fear that, you know, we'll lose our job, we'll lose our income. And that's a card that has been played by the the people that don't want us to do anything about climate change that you know that deny that humans are a cause they're constantly saying well look if we try to address this issue if we got off of fossil fuels the economy would collapse and you might be out of your job you may lose your job because we're going to do something about this well that is using a message you know lose your job that message is being used to trigger our, you know, our financial insecurity, our money complex. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there are other complexes that are, are triggered around this. Example is someone who is you know, deeply religious and who believes uh, that only God has the power to control the Earth's climate system in, in nature. God is in, in control of nature. And to suggest that humans have reached the point in history where we can change nature, we can alter the global climate system, that is a challenge to that fundamental belief system that only God has that power. Man doesn't have that power. Humans don't have that power. And so what's being challenged with them is their whole uh, value system and complex around uh, uh, God, the image of God, the God image. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that could be quite, you know, a strong uh, issue that prevents that individual or whole organization from accepting the facts of climate change. You also talk about the negative mother complex and the yes. negative father complex coming into this as well. Right. Right. So the mother, you know, there, I think, uh, it's more archetypal. So, you know, now we drop complex or, or you are often thought of these coherent, affectively laden structures, either in individual psyches or they're cultural. They can, you know, they're cultural belief systems 
that can both the positive aspect of a cultural complex is it can unify a commun a whole nation. Yeah. Okay. Keep it together. Of course, the negative side of that, and we're seeing that playing out all over the world now, is that it can lead to tremendous conflict. You know, wars can be fought over uh, cultural complexes, uh, conflicts between cultural complexes. Mm -hmm. but, it, but deeper down in the collective unconscious, we have, you know, the realm of the archetypes, which are these universal patterns of perception, uh, the way we perceive the world collectively is, you know, as a species is through the lens of archetypes. And two of the most powerful archetypes are the father and the mother. And, you know, each of these complexes and the archetypes, they come both in a positive and a negative sense. So if you think of the positive mother archetype, it's usually associated with abundance, creativity, uh, you know, growth, life, all of these are, are images or are, are, are words that are associated with the positive mother complex. But on the flip side, and there are mythologies, there are religions that have, uh, you know, metaphoric images of, the, of this flip side. It's the negative uh, mother archetype, which is the archetype of destruction, of devouring, you know, this is the great devouring mother who, uh, in some uh, fairy tales or myths, uh, is portrayed as the the old woman who, uh, you know, will devour her children or sell her children. Uh, that's a metaphor for a destruction of the future potential uh, that exists in an individual or even whole. Uh, collective like the human species so when you know you know this this uh, over consumption of the earth from an archetypal perspective could be viewed as a manifestation of that devouring okay and the negative father also does this the name Kronos uh, that Greek uh, god Kronos who devours his children why does he do that because he's been told that one of those children will become stronger than he and will take over as you know the lead god and so in order to prevent that he devours his children which is again a devouring of the potential for the future and in the process of burning fossil fuels in the process of causing global warming you know the greatest disruption to the climate system and earth system is going to occur in the next you know 30 or 40 years if we don't stop burning fossil fuels that's the future that's the future generation so the greatest tragedy uh, around the issue of climate change is you know yes it's tragic what is happening now but if we don't do something soon then we are in a sense devouring the future potential of our children and their children and many many future generations and when you say if we don't do something is it the case that we are looking to others to do it. We're looking to the yes. government to do it. We're looking yes. at to the big corporations to do it. And we're not looking at what each of us does, not just externally, but what's going on with us internally. Which Absolutely. Is what you've been talking about, uh, right. you know, for the our, past our, hour. 
right? I mean, you know, Jung opposed this, and uh, Neumann also wrote about this. You know, this is the uh, we we as human species we're conscious, okay, and and so we have the ethical responsibility, the moral responsibility, to be concerned about not just our personal lives, but the life of the planet. Okay, that's our ethical calling. That's our ethical responsibility. That's what comes with consciousness. And so uh, we cannot project, you know, uh, salvation or the, you know, the savior onto the government or the or technology or, or whatever entity that's outside of ourselves. Yes, they will have to help. This is a problem of massive scale. And governments will have to be involved, and technology will have to be a part of the solution. But equally so, we have to look within our own psyches and look at our own shadows uh, aspects around this issue. We have to look within to connect to our own sense of wholeness so that we feel a sense of fulfillment, so that we don't, as individuals, go out and overconsume. Uh, you know, the world. So this is a, a problem that it's easy to say, well, it's so huge, it's so large, yeah. that, you know, somebody else will have to fix this problem. You know, one of the greatest impediments to passing legislation around this issue in the United States is our political system. Well, you know, we vote for people, we elect people, you know, so it, there's a responsibility if you really feel this is an important issue, that come, that's an ethical responsibility when you vote for somebody. You have to understand what is their position on an important issue like climate change. You know, this sounds very political. It sounds too out, outside, external, worldy. But when you think about it and you reflect on it, it's not. It's a part of, it's a manifestation of our inner psyches. Okay. And this is, getting back to this discussion of inner and outer, you know, there is only one world. And I, I think that's a, a beautiful message that, you know, Jung found in uh, alchemical writings. It's a beautiful message that is pretty much a part of any uh, of the religious belief systems that exist, that, you know, we have this perception of inner and outer. Uh, but, you know, there's the unus mundus. There is the one world. We're an integral part of it. We're interconnected. We're interdependent. Uh, and, and that's something that we have to become conscious of. And we can become conscious of it through doing our inner work. Which is a pretty tall task, actually. It is. Especially there's, when it's not encouraged. That's right. So the, the collective, uh, uh, you know, if we look at how we deal with our personal uh, psychological problems, the collective perspective is, first of all, quickly, right? Yes. We have to find, uh, we have to, you know, the, the healthcare systems dictate that, you know, three to six sessions and, you know, you've, you've, your, your problems are going to be solved. Wow. Uh, they have to be uh, done quickly. They have to be uh, validated quantitatively, you know, I'm not sure how one valid, quantitatively validates, you know, images that are arising in one's dreams or uh, from psyche. Yeah. So, you know, the Jungian approach 
And this is a real challenge for the Jungian community is, you know, uh, how do we deal with the collective attitude towards mental health care, mm-hmm. which is external, it's quick, it's completely, you know, rational, it, you know, it completely, you know, separates itself from the non-rational. And of course, once you've done that, you're one-sided, right? And if you're one-sided, you're propagating a pathology, according to Jung. Yeah. So the only way to deal with, you know, our our uh, imbalances, we have to recognize the importance of the non-rational as well as the rational. Now, you know, it's interesting that if you look at neuroscience, you know, they're actually supporting this because more, you know, the research that's coming out of neuroscience is the importance of the unconscious processes that are taking place within the brain and how those play a role in, you know, our behaviors, our thoughts. So, you know, in, in, in many of those processes are metaphoric, they're imagistic, they're not, cog- you know, they're not linear, they're nonlinear. So all of this, the findings that are coming out uh, from that particular aspect of neuroscience research are actually supporting the fact that we have to include the non-rational. And that, you know, we have to marry the non-rational and the rational so that we have a more holistic picture of, of psyche. Yet, you know, that sort of understanding hasn't percolated up through, you know, the actual uh, view of how uh, psychotherapy or uh, mental health should take place within the collective, which is this very uh, quick, extroverted, thinking, uh, one-sided approach to, to healing soul. Of course, soul, soul isn't even a word that would be recognized <laughs> in, the, yes. in the, that collective uh, view. The soul doesn't exist in, uh, in that worldview. So, you know, how, how does the Jungian uh, world fit, find its place within that, that sort of an environment? That's a challenge. And that's a challenge for anyone who's training to become an analyst because you will, you know, uh, you will be an analyst uh, uh, living in a world that uh, pretty much uh, either doesn't pay tribute to or completely ignores uh, many dimensions of, you know, the way uh, we look at psyche. One more thing I'd like to ask you, Dr. Keel, is there are people out there that I had mentioned in the beginning that that don't believe in climate change or in global warming. Mm-hmm. And there's also a number of people who believe that the government or the global one world government is controlling our weather through things such as chemtrails, which is mm-hmm. spraying in the upper atmosphere. And I was wondering what your take was on that. Well, uh, first of all, from, you know, just from the science itself, there's no uh, solid factual evidence that uh, humans are manipulating contrails from aircraft that are controlling the uh, climate system. In fact, uh, there was concern a number of years ago because, you know, jets leave contrails scientists began to ask the question 
how important are you know the formation of contrails to the to the climate system because they're human caused we should look at that and there have been many many studies over the years doing quantitative analysis of the the size of that effect and its effect on the climate system and it's minuscule i mean there is an effect but it is absolutely uh, infinitesimal when you compare it to the magnitude of of uh, warming that we get from the burning of greenhouse gases so we know from a scientific perspective that these things can't be uh, affecting the climate system so the the other question is psychologically why would a group of people uh, come up with a, a conspiracy like this and you know blame some ambiguous amorphous body unseen body like the government or right. the global governments in, in cahoots with one another why would a group of people want to believe that sort of uh, conspiracy and i think you know if we if you reflect on that for a moment what does it do to someone if they can blame somebody else for a problem that they're complicit in it relieves one of the responsibility of doing anything about the problem yeah. okay and so if i uh, you know, if a group of people want to blame the government that they're in control of the climate system and they're doing it for whatever reason they're doing it, uh, then uh, that means that the person who's blamed the government has alleviated themselves of any responsibility to do anything about the problem. It's not in their hands. They're not causing it. It's, it's some powerful entity outside of themselves. So this is a classic, uh, psychologically, this is a classic uh, exhibition of or example of projection where, you know, uh, they, you know, they are complicit. We all are in causing this problem. But I'm going to shift that over to some unseen group and say they're the cause. They're in control. And it, it actually will, you know, it's a defense mechanism. Projection's a defense mechanism. What's the defense mechanism do? It reduces one's anxiety. Because if you, if you assume responsibility, if you take on the ethical responsibility that you have to do something about problem, a problem, well, usually that is accompanied by a sense of anxiety, you know, because one is concerned right. about, you know, what they have to do. They're concerned that they're contributing to the problem. So, you know, from a psychodynamic perspective, my answer to your question is, is a, it's a defense that they're defending against, you know, taking on uh, the responsibility that we all have to take on. And it's, it's, it's a clever way that psyche, you know, the unconscious uses uh, and the conscious realm uses to alleviate our sense of responsibility. It's so easy to blame somebody else right. for the problems we've created. I think what I would like to leave people with is, uh, you know, global warming or the human-caused climate change. I feel, if you look at it in terms of history, it's the greatest challenge that the human uh, species has ever 
faced. And really? It's many thousand. Yes. I mean, in terms of the magnitude and the implications, uh-huh. uh, you know, if we don't stop burning fossil fuels and we continue to burn them at the rate that we are burning them, you can do a fairly simple calculation as to how much carbon dioxide there's going to be in the atmosphere at the end of this century. That's 84 years from now. Okay. The lifetime of an individual. Yep. Okay, so a baby born today will see the end, you know, most likely is going to see the end of this century. So what is that level of carbon dioxide? It's three times what it was before we uh, began burning fossil fuels. And when was the last time the atmosphere had that much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? It was 35 to 40 million years ago. Oh, wow. Okay, and we know what the planet was like back then from geology, from other sources, paleontology. It was an extremely warm world. There were crocodiles living up in the Arctic Circle. It was so warm. So the question is, now it took nature, it took nature 35 million years to go from that very, very warm world down to the world that human species has known for its entire existence. We, in our cleverness, and our technological cleverness, in our ability to extract fossil fuels and burn them at a phenomenal rate, we are returning the planet to that state in a mere 100 years or so. Okay, so the rate and magnitude of change over that 100 years is unprecedented in Earth's history. And so species have to adapt to change, and the change is so rapid, it's not clear how many species will be able to adapt to the change that's occurring. So that's why I say this is the greatest problem that you know our species and and others have faced in Earth's history. So the question is, you know, we have a we have a window, and that window is about ten to fifteen years to get off of these fuels. And we can do it. This is the, the perhaps the greatest tragedy uh, if we don't get off of these fuels. Because we can, the technology, the you know, the ability uh, to do this. Many countries are already on their way to be complete, being completely uh, carbon free. Mm-hmm. We are the holdout. This country is the, the last holdout in doing something about the problem, and unfortunately, we are one of the greatest contributors to the problem. The United States, you mean? Yeah, the United States. Yeah. So the question is. You know, are people going to wake up in time uh, to actually want to do something about the problem? And, you know, from a Jungian perspective, that uh, comes down to are we willing to look within uh, to find that sense of wholeness within inside of ourselves so that we do not continue to desire to consume the planet outside of ourselves? You know, that's the work. That's the opus, uh, that uh, the magna opus that uh, that uh, we are you know, uh, called to at this time in history. Yes. I believe it's possible. I think there are moments in history where uh, you know great transformation has occurred. I think that's through the power of the collective unconscious. And I think such a transformation can occur this time around. Uh, but it's up to us. That's it's up to us as individuals, as as nations, as a species uh, populating this planet, to make that choice. Well, 
Thank you so much for shedding some light on it for us, Dr. Keel. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. I'd like to thank Dr. Keel once again for agreeing to be recorded for this podcast. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information about the publications and topics that were mentioned today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. With special thanks to John Todd, Laura Newton, and Michael Ochoa, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.